You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, the Battle of Freeman's Farm, or First Saratoga. Last week, we ended a series of episodes as General Howe made his long, slow sailing voyage from New York to Maryland and then marched his army up to capture Philadelphia. While all that was happening, General Burgoyne was marching his northern army from Canada down through upstate New York with the hope of taking Albany and eventually linking up with British forces in New York City. We last left General Burgoyne in episode 155 as his army suffered a loss at Bennington in an attempt to capture food and supplies. Despite that loss, Burgoyne's main army had reached the Hudson River and planned to march downstream to Albany. His hope to recruit an army of Tories in upstate New York had proven to be a joke. Almost all of his Loyalist soldiers were men who had already fled New York to Canada and had joined at the outset of the expedition. Promises of locals in New York who would flock to the King's banner had pretty much proven empty. Burgoyne found his supply lines from Canada too long and attenuated to do much good. He was frustrated that no British relief force seemed to be on its way from New York City. After receiving word that General St. Ledger's force had given up capturing Fort Stanwix and was returning to Canada, Burgoyne lost the only other prospect of reinforcements. Burgoyne's situation was becoming more threatened each day. His army was shrinking while his opponents were growing. His men were isolated and largely cut off from additional food and supplies. At the outset of the campaign, Burgoyne had hoped for more soldiers, better support from Canada, and most importantly, a British army marching northward from New York City. In his letters back to London, Burgoyne discussed the option of pulling back to Fort Edward, re-establishing supply lines with Canada, and awaiting more reinforcements. But getting bogged down like that and refusing to advance was exactly what he had accused his predecessors of doing in order to get this job. Burgoyne believed his orders were to push forward and take Albany, and he planned to do just that. Burgoyne ordered the bulk of his small reserves, still at Fort Ticonderoga, to march south and join up with his main army. He would not rely on maintaining lines back to Canada, but instead would live off the land. He determined that his army would cross the Hudson River and march down the west bank of the river to Albany. Crossing the Hudson so far upstream would prevent any problems trying to cross closer to Albany that might have to be done in the face of the enemy. But crossing where they did made it 
nearly impossible to retreat back to Ticonderoga if they ran into problems. Burgoyne was committing himself to complete victory or defeat. No option for backing down. The Americans, having succeeded in killing or capturing over 1,000 of the enemy at Bennington, continued to harass them whenever possible. They drove off cattle, burnt fields of grain and orchards. They tore up bridges and felled hundreds of trees across roads, all to slow and starve the British advance and deny them the supplies they needed to maintain the army. If time was on the side of the Continental Army, it was not on the side of their commander, General Schuyler. Before word of the victory at Bennington or Fort Stanwix reached the Continental Congress, the delegates in Philadelphia concluded that the loss of Fort Ticonderoga in July was simply unacceptable. Congress voted for the removal of General Schuyler from his command. New England delegates, especially, had never really liked or trusted the New York general. The loss of Ticonderoga under his command was the final straw. New Englanders, remember, had captured this fort a few years earlier, only to see it turned over to a New York commander, against what many of them would have liked, but in the interest of maintaining a united front. That New York commander's loss of the fort, as I said, was just unacceptable to them. Congress ordered both General Schuyler and General Sinclair to report to Philadelphia for an inquiry into their activities. The order came despite the fact that both generals were actively engaged in an ongoing campaign to halt General Burgoyne's army. At first, Congress wrote to General Washington and asked him to pick a successor to the Northern Army. Congress's obvious choice was General Horatio Gates, who Washington by this time had great reason to distrust. Washington knew that recommending Gates would be putting someone in charge who he did not really respect. Picking someone else who did not have the experience in New York and at a time when Washington needed those generals to stop General Howe from capturing Philadelphia would also be a problem. Washington would have preferred to keep Schuyler in command, but he could not say that without appearing to thumb his nose at Congress. So Washington punted. He simply informed Congress that if they were going to replace General Schuyler, then they should name the replacement. Congress then selected General Gates to assume command. Gates found out about the orders almost immediately. At a time when almost all the officers in the Continental Army were in the field, either opposing Burgoyne's advance on Albany or Howe's advance on Philadelphia, Gates was in Philadelphia complaining about their leadership and lobbying for a new job. After learning of his commission and knowing the situation was desperate, Gates took a leisurely two weeks to travel up to New York and take command on August 19th 1777. General Schuyler, who had received his orders to stand down and return to Philadelphia, felt obliged to remain in command until his successor arrived. Schuyler then spent the next few days trying to brief General Gates on the status of both his and the enemy forces and the strategies already in place. But Gates seemed entirely uninterested in anything Schuyler had to say. 
Instead, Gates held a large council of war for all Continental officers, as well as Albany militia commanders, but did not bother to invite Schuyler. Taking the hint, Schuyler finally packed up and left for Philadelphia. Gates also received reinforcements of about 8,000 men. These included new recruits from New England, New York, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. Washington also sent some of his own forces, including the highly valued riflemen commanded by Colonel Daniel Morgan. General Arnold was marching 1,200 Continentals back from their victory at Fort Stanwix. By early September, Gates was commanding an army of over 10,000 soldiers, finally outnumbering Burgoyne's army. Gates determined that he should pick out the best defensive ground in the region between Burgoyne and Albany and await the British there. At first, he gathered his army at a place called Stillwater. Then, after consulting with locals, he moved his army about three miles further north to Bemis Heights. There, he relied on Polish Colonel Tadeusz Kosciuszko to build the defenses. Kosciuszko is an interesting figure himself. He had grown up as a member of a minor nobility in Poland. During the 1760s, he worked as a military instructor for the Corps of Cadets in Poland. When the country descended into civil war, his family sided with the rebels against the king. Rather than pick a side, though, Kosciuszko fled the country. He settled in Paris. As a foreigner, he could not attend the military academy there. Instead, he enrolled in Paris's Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture. But this new art student was not totally dedicated to his new educational pursuits. At the same time, he audited lectures at the military academy and made use of the many military libraries in Paris. Now, if you think about it, this was kind of absurd. It was a security risk for a foreigner to receive grades and a degree from the military academy, but officials had no problems with him sitting in on classes and learning everything the instructor had to say. After the partition of Poland in 1772, Kosciuszko returned home to find his family broke from the war. He attempted to elope with the daughter of a local governor but the governor's soldiers caught the young couple and gave him a severe beating. He returned to Paris alone and out of money. Kosciuszko's education in the French Enlightenment and his experience with petty aristocrats left him with a fairly hostile view toward tyrannical leaders and made him a fan of liberation movements. When Kosciuszko heard about the war in America, he volunteered and traveled to Philadelphia. At first, he worked as a civilian consultant for some of the defenses along the Delaware River, then received a commission as Colonel of Engineers and a transfer to Fort Ticonderoga. There, he had worked with General Gates for a time before Gates left for Philadelphia. Kosciuszko had been a part of the retreat from Ticonderoga and remained with the Northern Army. On Gates's return as commander of the Northern Army, Gates relied on Kosciuszko to oversee the construction of the defensive works to oppose Burgoyne. Also joining Gates at Bemis Heights was General Benedict Arnold, fresh from his victory at Fort Stanwix. Arnold's role in capturing Fort Ticonderoga back in 1775 
and his success in preventing the British from capturing the fort in 1776 with his improvised navy, among other accomplishments, gave Arnold a fair amount of command credibility. He was now a major general, but was still frustrated that he was a more junior to Major General Lincoln, who had been commissioned before him. Arnold and Gates had gotten along well in earlier years, when both men were in upstate New York together. Gates knew of Arnold's record and his abilities, and gave him command of the left wing of the army. However, when General Schuyler left for Philadelphia, Arnold took on two of Schuyler's staff officers onto his own command, Richard Varick and Henry Brockholst Livingston. Gates's aide, Colonel James Wilkinson, who you may recall from episode 118 when he was mixed up in the conspiracy between General Gates and General Lee to bring down General Washington, was by this time an old hand at internal petty politics within the army. Wilkinson pointed out to Gates that Arnold's decision to take two of Schuyler's aides onto his staff meant that Arnold might not be particularly loyal to Gates. He showed Gates letters from both men where they badmouthed Gates' actions in the past. Gates hinted to Arnold that he wanted the two men removed from Arnold's staff. Arnold, however, refused to take the hint and kept the officers just where they were. A few days later, in what Arnold took to be a petty reprisal, Wilkinson issued orders to move several regiments from Arnold's command on the left wing to Glover's command on the right wing. Arnold lost his temper and wrote an angry letter to Gates. In response, Gates said it was just an oversight and that it would be countermanded. But it never was. The disagreement over staffing blew into a full-blown dispute between the two generals that would never heal. Gates saw Arnold as part of Team Schuyler and potentially disloyal to him. Arnold saw Gates as a petty officer putting internal politics above the war effort. I don't think either man was wrong in their assessment of the other. The relationship between Gates and Arnold would never again be a good one. On the morning of September 19th, American pickets noted the advance of the British Army toward Bemis Heights. General Gates was happy to sit behind his defenses and let the British try to force him out. General Arnold disagreed. Arnold feared that the British would send a force against the American right wing to distract the army. Then it would send a flanking force through the woods to move on the left flank. Once they got to the fields, the British could bring up their cannons and roll the American left, pushing everyone to retreat toward the Hudson River. Sentries detecting movements in the woods confirmed that this was likely what would happen. General Gates seemed to think, yeah, bring it on. The British can try to charge up hills against a dug-in and entrenched enemy. They will take an obscene number of casualties if they try that. He did not seem concerned that British artillery might devastate those defenses or that similar flanking maneuvers, like those used on Long Island or most recently at Brandywine, might lead to embarrassing losses for the Continentals his brilliant leadership would lead to a different result. Arnold, supported by Colonel Morgan, had a very different idea. These two officers wanted to advance the left wing of the army and hit the British in the woods before they could form up in the fields near the heights. 
a fight in the forest was not a strength for either British regulars or Hessians. Most of the Indian scouts had abandoned the British after the loss at Bennington, putting the British at a real disadvantage in woodland warfare. After considerable badgering and argument, Gates split the difference. He retained the Continental right wing under the command of General Lincoln and supported by Generals Glover, Nixon, and Patterson. These armies would hold Bemis Heights against a potential attack. General Arnold, supported by Generals Poor and Learned, and Colonel Morgan, could advance into the woods on the American left and engage the enemy there. If they failed, they could retreat back onto the heights and participate in the final defense. The British attack came pretty much as the Americans expected. General Burgoyne deployed his Germans under the command of General Redazel down the trail along the Hudson River to attack the American right. This group also took the bulk of the Army's artillery. In the center, General Burgoyne rode with Division Commander General James Hamilton and four regiments supported by artillery. Against the American left, Burgoyne deployed General Simon Fraser, his regulars, along with a couple of German regiments and a small remainder of Indians and Loyalists who had remained with the army. The Germans on the American right found it tough going as the column marched down the river road. The Americans had burned several bridges across streams and felled numerous trees across the roads. The soldiers struggled to remove the impediments to make it into position by 2 p.m. Similarly, General Fraser on the American left had to march nearly two miles further west to avoid a deep ravine. On the American left, General Arnold advanced with his division and Colonel Morgan's riflemen to the front. The advancing British ran into Morgan's riflemen at a small cabin on Freeman's farm. Freeman had been a local farmer who had since fled to Canada due to his Tory sentiments. There, Morgan's riflemen startled the British advanced skirmishers and forced them to retreat. Morgan's men then charged after the retreating skirmishers, only to run into the entire British center. The Americans fell under cannon fire and quickly retreated back into the woods. Both sides took pretty devastating losses. Morgan's riflemen were particularly effective in picking off officers from the skirmishing companies before they took heavy casualties themselves from the British cannons. Many of the British skirmishers also took friendly fire as they retreated back into the main British lines. General Arnold rode through the front lines, encouraging his men to advance. The fighting lasted about 45 minutes until both sides pulled back to assess damages. The lull lasted nearly two hours until shortly before 4 p.m., when both sides re-engaged with the fiercest fighting of the day. The American riflemen picked off artillery officers and crews, allowing the Continentals to capture several cannon. General Hamilton sent in British regular reinforcements to recapture those cannon and turn them against the Continentals once again. General Burgoyne also appeared near the front to encourage the men. He got within range of Morgan's riflemen, but a Continental rifleman mistakenly picked off a captain that Burgoyne was conferring with. The captain had a fancier saddle that caused the sniper to mistake him for the general. 
Despite the fierce fighting, General Gates held back the American right at the heights. He did not want to commit all of his forces to the fighting in case another attack came on the right wing. Similarly, Burgoyne held back most of Fraser's force on the American left in case the Americans tried a flanking attack from that side. As a result, the Continental forces under Arnold and the British under Hamilton bore the bulk of the intense fighting. At one point, the Americans almost forced the British center to buckle, but Major General Phillips personally rode in with four cannons to hold the Americans at bay, while the British line could regroup. As the fighting raged, Burgoyne ordered General Radazel to secure the baggage and lead his soldiers against the right of Arnold's advancing Continentals. This was a risky move, since it left the British baggage and a portion of its artillery relatively unguarded. General Gates could have swooped down and captured all of it. Gates, however, remained secure in his entrenchments, unwilling to venture out. Radazel advanced with several hundred soldiers and two cannons to find the Continentals close to overrunning Hamilton's center. Radazel ordered a charge and pushed back the startled Continentals. This attack near the end of the day secured British possession of the field. Only sunset and darkness finally put an end to the intense fighting as the Americans drew back to their lines. General Arnold was, in fact, fighting two battles at once, one with the British and another with General Gates. Over the course of the battle, Gates had refused to comply with Arnold's increasingly desperate calls for reinforcements. At one point, Gates even sent orders for Arnold to send back a regiment to protect Gates's headquarters. In frustration, Arnold finally rode back to headquarters himself to make his demands in person. Gates finally relented and sent off a brigade under the command of General Ebenezer Learned. Gates, however, refused to allow Arnold to return to the battle and forced him to remain in camp. Learned's reinforcements got lost in the woods and missed most of the battle. At one point, after receiving concerning reports about the course of the battle, Arnold had had enough and galloped off on his horse, determined to enter the fray. Gates ordered his aide, Wilkinson, to chase after Arnold and bring him back. Arnold reluctantly obeyed the direct order to return. Thus, Arnold missed the end of the battle. At the end of the day, the British held the field, so Burgoyne declared victory in his letters home to London. However, the British had taken nearly 600 casualties that they could ill afford. The Americans had lost about half that number. Although the British held the field of battle around Freeman's farm, they had not even reached the main American lines still several miles away at Bemis Heights. Even most British officers conceded that the Americans had fought well and held their own against the regulars. That night, the wolves came down from the hills to feed on the dead and dying as each side considered their next moves. Many of Burgoyne's officers wanted to advance again the next morning in hopes of catching the Americans still in disarray. Burgoyne, however, decided against it. His men were too exhausted. He did consider another offensive on the 21st. However, before dawn, he received a letter from General Clinton in New York City. 
Clinton's letter said that he would attempt some attack on the American forts in the lower Hudson Valley in order to distract the Americans. Burgoyne took this as hope that perhaps he might get some support from New York City after all. He knew London had planned to send reinforcements to New York City and that their arrival might encourage Clinton to go on the offensive. So Burgoyne opted to halt his offensive and await more information on a possible relief column. For the next couple of weeks, both sides nursed their wounds, buried their dead, and planned their next steps. Next week, during this pause, the Americans strike at Burgoyne's rear, including a raid on Fort Ticonderoga. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now They even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to Trey Nance and George Davis, for their support of the podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level. If you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com, search for American Revolution Podcast, and make a pledge there. I also have a similar setup on subscribestar.com for some donors who dislike Patreon. If you don't want to make a longer commitment, I'm also happy to accept one-time pledges via PayPal, Zelle, Venmo, or Pop Money. You can find more details on my website or at the bottom of each blog episode. I also want to remind everyone that you can follow me on Twitter at AmRevPodcast. I also have a Facebook group called American Revolution Podcast. Be careful, though. There is a second group called American Revolution Podcast Group instead of just American Revolution Podcast. That one has nothing to do with my podcast and is run by some other guy. He also has a Facebook page called American Revolution Podcast, which also has nothing to do with my podcast. So, if you want to get connected to the one related to this podcast, be sure to select the group that is simply called American Revolution Podcast. I did check out the other group and noticed some comments there were of people who were clearly referring to my podcast rather than the other one. 
Sorry that this can get so confusing, but I guess American Revolution podcasts are becoming a rather competitive field. Now, this week we covered the Battle of Freeman's Farm, sometimes called the First Battle of Saratoga. The British under General Burgoyne are becoming desperate as they are cut off from Canada and unable to reach New York City. The battle was the British Army's attempt to break through the American lines and finally reach New York. I briefly mentioned in the main show that we call it the Battle of Freeman's Farm because the battle was fought on a field owned by a Tory named Freeman. The farmer in question was a man named John Freeman, who had rented the land that he was farming from General Philip Schuyler. Freeman, along with his wife and ten children, had in fact fled to Canada earlier in the war. It turns out, though, that Freeman then enlisted in the King's Loyal Americans and was with this Loyalist regiment as it marched back to his old home. By some family histories, he served as a local guide to the British during the time surrounding this battle. His 12-year-old son, Thomas Freeman, was also with him during the campaign. Freeman managed to survive the battle and the campaign. At least one source I read said that when Burgoyne surrendered his army, the Loyalists that were with him were permitted to return to Canada. Uh, I'm not sure if the Americans allowed the return or if the Loyalists simply melted away and made their way back to Canada on their own. This is actually a question I'm still trying to answer. However, we do know that by early November, John Freeman and his son were back in St. John's, Quebec, and were reunited with their family. I wish I could say they lived happily ever after, but a short time later, a smallpox epidemic killed John Freeman, his wife, and seven of his ten children. His son Thomas did survive. Part of the reason we know this story at all is because Thomas later filed petitions to the king to be reimbursed for the property that his loyalist family lost in New York. After those petitions, history again seems to lose track of Thomas, but it appears he did start a family and settle in Quebec with other loyalists after the war. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting side note about the man who gave us his name to the Battle of Freeman's Farm. The other big battle we saw this week was the growing rift between General Gates and General Arnold. Gates seemed to go out of his way to prevent Arnold from having any success, deliberately keeping him away from the battle so that Congress would not give any credit to Arnold for the victory. By all appearances, this was retaliation for Arnold's refusal to dismiss several other officers who had shown loyalty to Gates's rival, Philip Schuyler, and who had said disparaging things about Gates. Putting politics ahead of the overall war effort was nothing new for Gates. The fact that this sort of scheming made him a success was probably a big part of what eventually made Arnold embittered toward the entire cause. My book recommendation this week is another one of several good books about the Saratoga campaign. This one is called The Battle of Saratoga by Rupert Furneaux. It covers the entire campaign in about 300 pages, with minimal notes and index. This is an older book, first published in 1970. And to make things just a little more confusing, it was published a year later, in 1971, with a slightly different name, Saratoga, The Decisive Battle. If you can find the book under either title, 
they're pretty much the same book, just with a different cover. The author, Rupert Furneaux, is British. The book does have a bit of a British perspective to it. It begins with the planning of the campaign in London and concludes with the fallout in London. That said, it does present both sides of the battle in a fairly straightforward and descriptive way. Furneaux was mostly known for writing fiction prior to this book, but I think he does a pretty good job with it. He passed away about 40 years ago, nearly a decade after the release of this book. A few weeks ago, I recommended Ketchum's book on Saratoga, and that remains one of my favorites on the topic. But if you want more about the battle and from a different perspective, Furneaux's book about Saratoga is a great read. My online recommendation is a very similar book called The March to Saratoga by Harrison Byrd. Now, this book is also about 300 pages and, in my view, written from a British perspective about seven years before Furneaux's book. The author, Harrison Byrd, worked for Fort Ticonderoga Museum for many years and published several other books about the region's history. This book, The March to Saratoga, is available as a free download at archive.org in PDF, ebook, or other formats. So, if you want even more reading but don't want to actually buy the book, Bird's The March to Saratoga might be the one for you to try. As always, you can search for the title at archive.org, or I have a direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com, or on my blog episode at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.